So, welcome to chapter 9 in our series on Exodus. And the title that has been given for us today is God's Unshakable Promises, and it's from Exodus chapter 6, and the first 13 verses of that. Just very briefly, um, as we see the story of the Exodus gathering momentum, let's visit where we've got so far. It's the next phase of God's plan for his chosen people. And it begins with the rescue after 400 years of tyranny in Egypt. It speaks to the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to the forefathers, specifically Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which amounts to the provision of a whole country that they can own and occupy, and a place in which they can realize their full potential as a people, uniquely serving the God of all creation to his glory and to their collective complete fulfillment. Our story so far has described how after various protracted arguments, I would say, with his chosen leaders, they now, albeit reluctantly, accept their roles and move forward with the execution of God's plan, only to meet with what seemed to feel like a fall at the first hurdle. Not only um, did they find Pharaoh to be uncooperative, they found that the instructions God had given in their approach to Pharaoh was downright provocative. And the consequence, rather than Pharaoh keeling over and saying, yeah, no problem, I'll let your people go, he um, wound up the pressure on them as slaves and says, okay, you will now make bricks without straw. And by the way, there will be no let up in the quota of bricks that we're expecting from you. Um, we drew a parallel last week uh, in David's ministry about the difficulties that Christians face in life. Clearly God had a plan and it was in God's sovereign will that that plan would know its frustrations by people who were not cooperative. And David drew us to that um, very familiar verse, John 16 and 33, where he says to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So we're kind of drawing that parallel in reflecting on the fact that not everything goes smoothly in our own lives and the key is how do we respond to it. Well, Mo Moses' response to the people's contention, they said to him, you've made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials. And Moses' response, I think quite uh, acceptably in a way, was to go back to God and ask him the why question. Sometimes we're discouraged from asking the why question because maybe it, it smacks of impertinence. Um, but actually, I think it's appropriate so long as we don't necessarily um, demand that he answers. Sometimes he chooses to answer that question. Sometimes he chooses not to. Before we have our reading, which is the first 13 verses of chapter 6 of Exodus, just a, a bit about the structure. 
I'd like to um, mention the context very briefly of why Moses was asking the why question. Um, and our main point in today's ministry is the, the promises that God reminds Moses about. So we will go through those, and I counted eight of them. Um, and there is a bit of an interjection, two other important points that I'm picking up from this passage. Number one is a reminder, as we are asking the why question, of God's true identity. That's an important part of his response to Moses, as well as reminding him of promises that he'd made. Um, God reminds Moses and his people exactly who he is, so his identity. And um, the second point, which is kind of subliminal in the passage so far, is we're getting to a pivotal point in God's dealings with people and we're, um, if you like, transitioning from dealing with individuals like Moses and Aaron, like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and we're transitioning into God interacting with a collective, a large group of people. So um, that's the structure of our presentation this morning. Let's go to our reading, and I'd like to actually start from verse 25, sorry, verse 22 of chapter 5. So Exodus 5, verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on his people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I, am, since I speak with faltering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh king of Egypt and he commanded them to go and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. So first of all, before we go into these promises, the I wills of the passage that we've just read, 
a reminder of the identity of this God that Moses was talking to. Um, Moses is asking the legitimate, I'm going to suggest, why question. You know, you've given us these instructions, we followed your instructions, and you kind of get the sense from Moses' attitude, and predictably, you know, we got um, a less than cooperative response, and now we're in deeper trouble than we were in the first place. Why are you doing this? And um, here's what um, we read, verse 2. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. Key word here, and David mentioned it last week the expression for the Lord here is Yahweh Jehovah God also said to Moses I am the Lord I appeared to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty that's El Shaddai a different term a different name for God but by my name the Lord Yahweh I did not make myself known to them and then verse 8, I am the Lord, Yahweh. First lesson for me in our consideration of God's response to Moses' why question is to get the point, this perhaps when we read it in English, quite subtle point, but actually crucial point that God is making to Moses and wanting him also to pass on to his people. Um, God is saying, when I first re revealed myself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I revealed myself under the name El Shaddai. That means God Almighty, supreme in power. And uh, actually, it's quite interesting. You get those specific references to Genesis 7, in Genesis 17, verse 1, Genesis 28, verse 3. And Genesis 35 verse 11. A little aside here, in Exodus we're reading quite a subtle point about the, the word, the specific Hebrew word that God used to introduce himself to these people. And actually it's perfectly correct because you can go to those three references in the earlier book and see how he introduced himself. And he introduced himself as Almighty God, Supreme in Power, El Shaddai. Um, in each case, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, as we read their story, the interaction between God and them evolved from El Shaddai, Almighty God, Supreme in Power, to Yahweh. And Yahweh is the covenant God who performs what he has promised and finishes his work. So there is a transition in relationship um, that I, my contention here is it's quite unique. So anyone acknowledging the true God would say El Shaddai. He's the God Almighty, the one supreme in power. Those who can uh, refer to him as Jehovah um, are more limited in terms of group because they're ones to which he has made promises and Jehovah um, Yahweh Jehovah always has associated with it this expression or this thought that he is the God of covenant the God of promise 
and he fulfills all his promises and he finishes his, his work. That is God's response to Moses' why question. And he's saying, just like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob learned this lesson, the respect for me and their relationship with me transitioned from acknowledging my greatness and my supreme power into a relationship where they were able to describe me as Jehovah, Yahweh, the one who fulfills his promises. Moses, I've made some promises and you've come to me and asked me why I haven't done them. Well, trust me, I am Yahweh. That means I'm going to deliver on all my promises. You know, it's a, a very key thing for us all to reflect on. Um, how do we think of God? Do we think of him as the supreme creator of everything that exists, which is true? And we were thinking a little of that in Hebrews 1 this morning. That's um, how he describes what the Lord did, supreme in power, in creatorial power. Completely appropriate for us to see God in that context. But do we, in our lives, um, see God also as that Yahweh God, the one who has made commitments to us? The one who actually we have made commitments to ourselves and there needs to be a fulfillment. My mind goes to Luke 6 and, and 24 where the Lord says to the people, why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I say? I'm grateful that in English, Yahweh is often translated in the Old Testament, it's translated Lord. And it gives me this helpful distinction between thinking about God as the supreme power and thinking about him as the Lord, the one who has authority over my life and circumstances. Um, and the Lord Jesus himself was saying, don't call me Lord unless you do the things that I ask you to do. There's a covenant um, thing going on there. So challenge, first challenge is how do I see my relationship with, with God, it's completely appropriate for me to acknowledge him as El Shaddai, the almighty, infinite in power. But I also need to acknowledge him as I follow him as the one who is Yahweh, Lord of the fulfilled promise. That was my first point, identifying, God identifying who he was. This is an answer to Moses' why question. The second point I wanted to make is both in our story of Exodus, where we're up to, and so far we were pretty much dealing with Moses and Aaron, um, so God's interaction with individuals, and now we're transitioning from that to God dealing with his people. This is um, now no longer a one-on-one -on -one dialogue. This is God communicating corporately with a group of people. It's actually um, not just the first time we're coming across this concept going from individual to collective in the story of Exodus. It's actually the first time in the, in the narrative that is the Bible. Because when God made these promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they were, they were kind of individuals or at best, um, relatively speaking, a small family. And yes, he was making these promises for their future generations. But now... Um, 
400 years on from Jacob, we, we have a community and it's huge. If we go to um, Exodus 12 and 37, it says that there were 600,000 adult men in the people of Israel. Um, if you go back to the end of Genesis, there's a, a head count and there were, including Joseph and his sons, there were 70 people in um, the family of Israel when they went down to Egypt. 400 years later, there are 600,000 adult men and that would imply a population of about two to two and a half million in total. We're talking about a very substantial community. Incidentally, the historians would say that the Egyptian population was about five million at the time. So this is a, putting some perspective around it, this is a huge chunk of their workforce that we're talking about. Why is this important? Well, I think there are, there are many um, who don't really transition from understanding the Christian message as an individual into understanding the Christian message as a collective. Um, and of course it starts with the individual. Individual personal faith in a personal saviour. It's a, a personal salvation that we enjoy. But fundamental, and this is why this is sadly often overlooked, it doesn't stop with individuals. Uh, a Christian can't be a Christian on his own. Um, God's designed um, Christians to be together in a church and they can only function properly if they're functioning alongside other Christians in a church. Really important point for us to grasp in our um, look at where we're going through in Exodus. We're now dealing with Yahweh, the God of the promise and the God of the covenant, not covenanted with individuals but um, covenanted with a group of people. So we come to those unshakable promises. Um, I counted in the passage that we've read eight I wills. Um, and these are statements that God makes in response to Moses' why question. He starts, as we said, by remembering who, by reminding uh, Moses of who he really is, Yahweh and his covenanted promises, and then he moves on to articulate what those promises are. Um, I would say that when we find ourselves in a situation like Moses found himself in, high expectations and low delivery by the look of it from, from God's perspective, there are two things we need to remember in approaching God. One is his identity. If he makes a promise, then he will deliver on it. And the only issue is timing. Um, the second point is he's the God of the bigger picture. So while Moses and Aaron and the leaders of the people at the time were very frustrated because this one meeting, I think it was just one meeting with Pharaoh, went very badly. And they'd written the whole plan off. They said, well, if this is what God wants to put us through, we're not interested, we'd rather stop here. Um, he is the God of, of the bigger picture. He has the full plan in all of his sovereignty. 
And while we might be irritated by a little part of it here, not going the way we expected it to go, we need to approach him recognising that he has the full picture. So it's with those two points, his true identity and the fact that there is a bigger picture that we haven't got visibility of, that we look at these I wills. The first I will in verse 1 is uh, really quite interesting. Um, God says to Moses and therefore to his people, you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. What I've done here is, is kind of pulled out a New Testament verse. I tried to, in the interests of keeping this thing about the collective, I tried to pull my verses, New Testament verses, from Hebrews. Because that's the, um, the closest New Testament um, equivalent where the book of Hebrews was written to Jews who were Christians and in churches of God. Um, so it's, if you like, the closest New Testament parallel. Um, you may do better than I did in finding verses in Hebrews. I think I've got seven out of the eight verses from Hebrews, maybe, maybe six. Um, but see how you get on. The first I will is the people will see what I will do to Pharaoh. And of course, Pharaoh, we need to be careful not to over-spiritualise, but it's fairly clear that Pharaoh um, is all things not God. So maybe we can think of Pharaoh and Egypt as the world and the prince of the world, who is, of course, Satan. And God is saying to Moses, it's a promise. The people will see what I'll do to Pharaoh. I went to Hebrews 2 verse 14. It's talking about the Lord. He said, he too shared in her humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of, the de of death. That is the devil. In the bigger picture, we have already seen, um, based on what went on at Calvary, what in our time God has done to Pharaoh. He has destroyed the prince of this world and him who has the power over death, that is the devil. Celebrate that one. That's the uh, only promise that's kind of outside of direct commitments to the people of Israel. So the following seven, uh, the remaining seven, are directly to, to God's people. The second one I found comes from verse 6. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Going back to Hebrews 2 and 14. He too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I know um, there is a sense where mankind is under a yoke, the shackled by the fear of death and its inevitability and its permanence. And um, God was saying to his people, I will free you from that yoke. And again, another point of celebration, the promise in Hebrews 2 and 15, he will free, free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. <clears throat> Something for us to celebrate because of what we know of the Lord. That's about 
our eternal security um, being released from the fear and the permanence of death. Number three, verse six again. I will free you from being slaves to them. It seems to me there's a, a subtle difference between being um, under bondage to the Egyptians and being enslaved. Under bondage means you're shackled, you know, and you, you can't get away. Being um, enslaved means you're subject to their instructions, their influence. And I think it's a really important distinction. It's a separate promise here, so it's, uh, it's not all bundled together, you know, meaning the same thing as the earlier promise. And I think it's referring to uh, God's promise to help us overcome the power of sin. It's actually a burden I have felt personally um, for quite some months, and you kind of see it cropping up um, from time to time in my readings, that it's one thing to be to enjoy our salvation from the penalty of sin and all of the eternal security that brings, but our lives can be so destroyed by the power of sin. And, you know, those people were, they weren't, God wasn't just going to say, I'm going to let you escape for a day or three to do your worship. I'm going to um, release you from this um, bondage that you have, this um, tyranny that's going on. One little verse which I'd never seen before, and it's very familiar to all of us, is when the Lord was at the grave of Lazarus and he shouted the command, you know, Lazarus, come out. And it says Lazarus came out and he, and he was bound up. And the Lord said, loose him, because, you know, he won't be able to do anything unless you loose him. And the thought that came to me is those grave clothes were, you know, the consequence of sin. He wouldn't have been wearing them had he not died. And the Lord was saying, you're going to have to take those off Otherwise, the man's not free. Uh, just a simple thought, isn't it? That um, we can be saved, we can, in that sense, be given a new life, we can be born again, but we can be shackled by the power of sin. And we have to let that go. The verse I had was, um, it's a Romans verse, Romans 6 and 17. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. This is a, a freedom uh, not to do as we like, because that's the recipe for anarchy. It's a freedom to do what God wants us to do. And we get that from Romans 6. Number four, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Um, I've got some homework for you. I was intrigued with this expression, outstretched arm. You get it in that verse uh, we've just read, uh, verse 6. He, re he was promising to redeem them with an outstretched arm. He refers later, I think it's verse 8, to the covenant he made with uh, a lifted up arm, I think it is. Um, I just wondered what the relationship is between those. You get the idea of arms outstretched associated with redemption and um, an arm lifted up associated with a covenant. I haven't had the time to research it. Perhaps you can come and educate me on that. 
Number five. Um, so, sorry, um, I, I didn't really focus on the redeemed thing. The verse for number four is Hebrews 9 and 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he, he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. I find myself often thinking when, when we come to redemption about the cost. Um, and of course that's completely appropriate because we think about the amazing price that was paid for our redemption. You know, someone has said it's like the bank vault of heaven being emptied on our behalf when the Lord Jesus came to be our sacrifice. That's only one element of redemption. And I think the thing that's being emphasised here in the Exodus story, you know, what, what did it cost God? to redeem his people. Uh, I'm not sure really, but the, the key implication of redemption is that you're brought back. So the person who originally owned you now owns you again. And it's great when there is a price paid um, because we can meditate on that too and celebrate it. We don't get um, so much about the price paid in the reflections we're doing in Exodus. Let's go to number five. I will take you as my people. And the verse I came up with there was Romans 2 and 9. But you, sorry, that should be First Peter 2 and 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Um, there's a something special about God calling a people and making them his own possession um, particularly as we, we reflect on it, on it in the New Testament in our own experience where he paid that immense price and you go to the parable of the, um, the, the pearl that was found and the, the guy who found it um, went and paid the, bought the field and, and paid all he had to, um, to own this. And it was then his possession. And there's something really special about experiencing or understanding that um, part of our redemption isn't him just paying the price, but it's him wanting to own us and cherish us in that special way. Number six. He says, I will be your God. Interestingly, this is neither El Shaddai or Jehovah. It's another one, another name called Elohim. And my sense of that word, and someone can help me if they know better, is it has the thought of someone who's very active, someone who's very, a God who's very active and involved. I go to um, Revelation 1, 5 and 6. Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. When the, the Lord said to his people, I will be your God, that's really a statement about their behaviour. Um, I will be your God and all that that means. 
and um, I love the expression um, and he made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father it's our privilege to own him as our God the one who is active and engaged in all our life circumstances and in all that we do number seven I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand there's the other expression outreached hand was the redemption uplifted hand is to do with the covenant Hebrews 12 and 22 but you have come to Mount Zion to the heavenly Jerusalem the city of the living God you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven you have come to God the judge of all men the spirits of righteous men made perfect to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkling blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Moses. The people were promised their own land and it was the completely appropriate place where they could fulfill their potential in service and in worship, worshiping God. And um, you have that so wonderfully expounded in Hebrews 12 that you have come to Mount Zion the heavenly Jerusalem it's a spiritual house of God that we now occupy and uniquely are able to serve him to his glory and to our fulfillment and finally uh, number eight I will give it to you as a possession we read in an earlier verse that when he was talking about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and how he presented himself as um, El Shaddai, um, God Almighty of, a, of supreme power, he said they occupied Canaan, the promised land, as aliens. Um, in contrast to the eighth promise, I will give it to you as a possession. That again is... Uh, a whole point of meditation in its own right. I went to Hebrews 3 and 6. But Christ is faithful as son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope that we boast. Um, God is very possessive about his people. And he's put us into a very privileged situation. And his expectation is that we'll take ownership. Um, I think in an earlier point I was, I was making that the people of Israel, God's promise is that they would own and occupy the promised land. And wonderful thing for us, uh, um, a promise that we can borrow from God's dealings with his Old Testament people is he's brought us into a place, the place of his name, his house, and we can own and occupy it. But it is conditional. Uh, maybe that's something that we can um, think about some more in future ministries. Finally, um, God has very comprehensively answered Moses' why question with two statements. One is about who he is, the God, of, God who keeps his promises. And by the way, here are the eight promises, Moses. Go and tell the people. Um, and what do the people say? It says they didn't listen because they were discouraged and under bondage. Uh, Moses comes back and he's, <laughs> you, know, you kind of wring your hands with frustration. He's back to square one. He says, um, 
I, try, I tried and they didn't listen. And God says, well, go and tell Pharaoh. And he says, well, why would I tell Pharaoh? If, the people, if my own people won't listen, what chance have I got that Pharaoh will listen? I love that expression in verse 13. It's almost like God steps out of that situation where it's almost like negotiation sounds too disrespectful. I don't mean that. He's, he's calling the shots. But he kind of notches up his directness to, to Moses. And in verse 13 it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh king of Egypt. And he commanded them, that's Moses and Aaron, to go and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. So it's as though he's saying, Moses, you, you haven't been listening. This is who I am. Here's my promises. And, I, and I've got a 100% track record. It's who I am, the one who fulfills my promises. Now, I don't care what the people said. I don't care what Pharaoh's reaction, you think Pharaoh's reaction might be. Go and bring my people out of Egypt. I've chosen you to do it. And that's how we leave the story um, as we now begin to embark on the plagues, um, which may sound like more of the same. Next up, which is me again next week, um, we'll be looking at the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And you might feel that smacks of a bit, <laughs> a bit dull. But actually, it's very special because what it tells us is about ordinary people in a very extraordinary plan. Shall we pray?